2: Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Joining me now is former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Mr. Secretary, welcome back to The Hugh Hewitt Show. Good morning, Hugh. It's great to be with you again today. We talked last on August 20th as the fiasco in Kabul was beginning to come into public view. uh, Ten days later, after the catastrophe at the airport and after the catastrophe of the evacuation, what is your summary of what we have seen since July of 2021? Well, oh, goodness. Uh, this was a, a date-certain set, and the uh, bad
1: guys took advantage of it. Uh, they, the sequencing appears to have created a lot of risk, and now we can see. We saw the pictures and the images yesterday from Dover Air Force Base with the dignified transfer of 13 amazing Americans. I uh, pray for their families. Uh, we still are struggling today. We're less than 24 hours now from the committed deadline. The President Biden has been unwilling to move even by an hour. And I I pray that we get uh, every one of our American military, American diplomats uh, and and all Americans home from Afghanistan. We do so in a way that's safe. I hope these next 24 hours or 48 hours don't bring more tragedy. Uh, I fear that what's uh, after this could be even worse.
2: You've been watching the administration and the president respond, not respond, stumble, face plant for 10 days. Uh, Could you conceive of anything being handled worse than the last 10 days have been handled? Boy, it's uh, it's been uh, really unfortunate, unfortunate
1: because the, the American people deserve better than this. The American people deserve American leadership who tells them here's what's really going on. Right. We've seen them make misstep after misstep and just the communications of this right first saying, well, we we think we've got this many Americans. It's just been very confusing for the American people. We we, we tried to make it always you very straightforward. We had a couple missions there. One was to get our young men and women home when the conditions were right to do so. Uh, and second, to preserve the capacity to make sure that we were never attacked in the way that, oh goodness, uh, you know, uh, 12 days from 20 years on happened in New York and in Washington and Pennsylvania. Those were our twin missions. We talked about them often. We used every tool of our power to try to achieve them. And these last 10 days, we watched the administration create an enormous amount of risk that resulted in that. Uh, the largest loss of death in Afghanistan in over a decade.
2: Let me review, uh, Mr. Secretary, uh, the Trump administration policy on Afghanistan. Troops under your watch reached their height at 15,000 in September of 2018. There were 13,000 in country at the time of the Doha agreement in late February, February 29th of 2020. Was President Biden obliged either by the Doha agreement or secret protocol to reduce to zero, no matter the conditions on the ground, by tomorrow? No. And in January of 2021, when you left office, there were 2,500 troops in country and 18,000 contractors. Was he obliged by the Doha agreement or secret agreement to get rid of those 2,500 or those 18,000 contractors by a date certain ever.
1: No, Hugh, in, in fact, we, we always knew that the numbers, the actual troop numbers were con- conditions-based. We, we And by the way, the, the, the Taliban knew this, the Afghan government knew this, the Hazaris knew this, the Northern Alliance folks in the north knew this. Everyone with whom we were having conversations, with whom we were trying to get to the table, understood that we were going to preserve and protect America's interests. And so the, the deal had a May 31st objective. It was conditioned on a series of commitments that the Taliban had made. It also had a series of commitments that the Afghan government had made about how they would behave as well. If those conditions were met, we were going to measure twice before we departed. And, in fact, you, as you know, we wanted to get down as small as we possibly could, as fast as we could. You, you talked about the steps along the way. I think it was from 15 to 8,600. 15,000 to 8,600, then to about 4,500, then to just over 2,500. Each time we measured, we evaluated the conditions on the ground, we consulted with the military, made sure that we had the security levels right to prevent precisely what we've seen happen there. Uh, We would have loved to have taken one more step before we departed, but the conditions simply weren't right. President Biden was under no obligation to do so in the same way we were under no, Trump administration was under no obligation to do so. He he made this choice. He made this choice to put first September 11th and then ultimately tomorrow, August 31st, as the deadline. He appears to be unwavering in his commitment to doing that.
2: In March of 2021, the president announced, President Biden, that it might be November before he completed the withdrawal. On April 5th, 14th, he announced it would be withdrawn by September 11th. Bagram was vacated on July the 2nd. On July the eighth, President Biden changed the departure date to August of thirty first. Did that have any inevitability about it? Was there anything obliging him to leave and to change the date and to to act the way that he did?
1: Oh, oh goodness, no, no. There there was no obligation. The the obligation was to the American people and to securing America. No, there was there, there was no contractual commitment enforceable in any way. was right? Some suggestion that they were. They were bound up to this or or even the suggestion somehow that the the reason the Taliban didn't attack us because we'd we'd cut this deal and they were going to honor the deal. Uh, the truth is, we saw the Taliban break the deal during our time as well. Hugh. And when they did, we used American military might and American power to create the deterrence conditions, to create the space for us to continue to evaluate how to get drawn down as quickly as we could. Uh, this administration chose a different path. They put a date certain out there, not conditions based. I, I guess I can't tell for sure, but nine eleven sounds like a date that has political and uh, op- about optics rather than military and American national security at its foundation. There was no obligation to do that. I, I don't know where that date came from. Uh, he's referred to this May date that was in the agreement, but of course he didn't get out by May. Uh, because he wasn't required to get out by May. And, in fact, the loss of American life didn't happen in May. It didn't happen in June. It happened uh, as they were conducting a withdrawal that hadn't adequately prepared for how to sequence to get the American people out, our equipment out, and to make sure that we had security all the while executing that mission.
2: On Sunday, National Security Advisor Sullivan appeared on the Sunday shows and discussed the timeline. Let's play Cut 7. The whole goal here was to get
0: U.S. military forces out of Afghanistan by September 11th. Whose idea was it to use 9-11 as the deadline? When the uh, decision was taken by the president to draw down our forces in Afghanistan, and he took that decision back in April, we had an impending May 1st deadline. At which point the Trump administration had negotiated the removal of all American forces from the country. The president asked his commanders, how much time do you need to be able to get out of Afghanistan in a way that you feel will protect the forces and allow you to execute a drawdown that also protects our allies as they were coming out? And they gave him a timetable of 120 days of four months. And that is what has guided his decision making about coming out of Afghanistan from the start has been the tactical advice of his commanders on the ground, and that is how we will ultimately bring this mission to a close. So they didn't explicitly say 9-11, they said four months, and you guys all looked at the calendar and realized 9-11 was there, and said, okay, let's try to do it by then? What we said was that the mission would end before the 20th anniversary of September 11th. That is what the administration laid out, and it was based on a 120-day timetable, as briefed to the president by the commanders, who felt that that was the appropriate timetable to try to execute the drawdown and the completion of the U.S. military mission in Afghanistan. Part of why I asked this, and I know you don't oversee everything, you're in charge of national security, but this summer, there was the July 4th deadline in the hope of declaring independence from the pandemic. There's this nine. 9- deadline where now the Taliban essentially is going to be back in control of Afghanistan on the 20th anniversary. Has there been any conversation about perhaps not using dates on a calendar to set White House policy anymore? Ed, i got to tell you, right now what we're thinking about all day and all night, including every single hour of last night, How do we protect our forces at the Kabul airport against imminent threats from ISIS-K? And how do we get those remaining American citizens and others out of the country? That's what I'm focused on. That's what we're trying to accomplish here. And we are going to keep our focus on that until
2: we get the job done. What is your response, Secretary Pompeo, to that exchange with Jake Sullivan?
1: Well, I can't tell you precisely whether that's what the military told this administration. I suppose it's possible. I can tell you that for four years... We didn't talk about dates certain. The military didn't say, there's a date we can do X. We, we talked about conditions. We talked about what we will have to deliver. And so we were we were aiming to support the diplomats. The State Department was aiming to support the military in its effort to achieve the conditions that would permit us to take the various steps that we did that I've talked about, the, the sequence drawdown that we were engaged in. So when I hear them say that they were setting dates on a calendar, we know how risky this is bad guys see the dates, the bad guys act accordingly, the bad guys push and shove. And they recognize that once you've committed to this, once you have publicly stated that on this day and on this day certain, we're going to leave, you can be pushed, you can be cajoled, and you can impose real costs on the United States. And their, their ability to respond will be near zero because their focus has to be on hitting that target, that targeted date, rather than on hitting the conditions that will permit the execution of the mission that delivers on behalf of America. I, I must say, for for four years first as CIA director and then as Secretary of State. I listened to the military as we thought about how to accomplish the twin missions of getting home and protecting from attack, uh, protecting the homeland from an attack from Afghanistan. I, I never once saw a date certain put in front of the President of the United States by the military or the intelligence community.
2: Mr. Secretary, you do remind people you began the administration as director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, do you believe we have the, quote, over the horizon capability to deter al-qaeda and other terrorist organizations from operating effectively in afghanistan now
1: there's a couple things worth thinking about as we consider how we manage our counterterrorism posture not only in afghanistan but around the world i know today we're very focused on afghanistan but we shouldn't forget a couple of basic facts first al-qaeda operations the senior leadership of al-qaeda today is not in afghanistan it is not in pakistan it's in tehran it is in iran it has been protected by the world's largest state sponsor of terror. So the al-Qaeda threat, its global operations capability, is headquartered in Tehran, Iran. We shouldn't forget that. We, we took an important mission. The CIA took a strike on one of those very senior leaders in Iran now just over, goodness, a year ago. We took him out. I hope this administration is focused on continuing to degrade al-Qaeda's capability. That will require work all around the world. Al-Shabaab in Africa, AQAP in Yemen certainly continued work in Afghanistan. As for the specific case of Afghanistan, I don't know what the administration has actually uh, done to prepare for the capacity to deliver. Uh, We do have a set of capabilities that let us do counterterrorism operations without a substantial footprint on the ground. It is difficult to do in Afghanistan, but I hope they've left the tools and the mechanisms in place that we can have a sense of what's going on the ground there and the capability to go disrupt terror plots aimed at the homeland. From Afghanistan, as well, as for threats from other radical Islamists, not just al Qaeda, but certainly ISIS and the others as well, whether they come from Afghanistan, whether they come from Southeast Asia, or whether they come from Africa or Europe, this is an important capability that the United States has had built up over twenty years, and the the willingness to commit to a date and pull everything out suggests that they haven 't taken this adequate taken the precautions with an added, with an adequate level of seriousness.
2: When I interviewed you at Langley uh, for MSNBC, you talked about the men and women of the intelligence community and how devoted they were to their task and purpose. Do you think they have left in place the kind of assets and communication structure that would allow us to operate something there to give us an idea of what's going on there?
1: I don't know. There's there's always two things. You asked the right question. You asked the right question that day. It seems like a long time ago we were together at it. Langley, uh, you asked the right question. It's not just the right resources. I, I hope those are in place. It is also absolutely vital that you have the rules of engagement right. One of the things that we found when uh, the Trump administration began is that the rules of engagement for our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, as well as for our intelligence community, prevented us from taking precisely the kind of actions that can push back against radical Islamic terrorism. So we had to upend that. We had to give the rules of engagement that would let. Protect themselves and conduct the operations that they needed to. We saw this with the caliphate at ISIS, right? President Trump said, Oh, we're going to go fix it. Uh, we saw it with the strike that we took on Qasem Soleimani. In every case, the president authorized our military and our intelligence committee to do the things that were needed, both from a resource perspective and from an operational perspective to protect and secure American freedom. I hope you that what is now still going to be in Afghanistan is capable of delivering both the resources. And the opportunity, the rules of engagement that will permit us to protect America, and, uh, the American homeland from threats that emanate from Afghanistan and the caves of Tora Bora.
2: Now, Secretary, you have been personally criticized for signing the Doha agreement. You have been the subject of a great deal of attacks by the publication and republication of the picture you took with Abdul Baradar and for the release of 5,000 Taliban not long after the Doha agreement. How do you respond to each of those? Your, your agreement to Doha, the taking of the picture, the release of the, of the prisoners?
1: Well, we were working on the two missions that President Trump gave us. He, he wanted this process. We called it the peace and reconciliation process, trying to take down the risk to Afghan women, Afghan civil society by beginning a set of conversations. No administration in history had ever had all the Afghan interests sitting around the table. We achieved that. Uh, three presidents before us had tried to do that they tried to get this right to get the afghans to at least talk to each other we'd started that process it began with the afghan government and president ghani uh, an incredibly corrupt official It then uh, transitioned to conversations with the taliban and with uh, other leaders in afghanistan including non-governmental organizations women's groups civil civil institutions inside of afghanistan we were working to put them all together and so we signed an agreement with the Taliban. We signed an agreement with the Afghan government aimed directly at protecting and securing American freedom and trying to create the conditions for Afghan peace. We, we always knew, Hugh, this was a multi-year, maybe a decade, maybe 20-year proposition. I, I think of Colombia with the negotiations with the FARC. But these conversations go on for years, but you have to begin them somewhere. And it's always with your adversaries and your enemies that you end up making peace and so we began to work. But we, we never did this, You, We never did this with a, a misunderstanding of who the Taliban was and their connections to al-Qaeda. We, we got them to promise to break with al-Qaeda, but we didn't trust that promise. We were requiring them to begin to deliver on that promise. And when they didn't, we punished them. We imposed real costs on them. This was a an, an effort that was important. I'm glad we began down this path. I hope it will ultimately deliver some results that will make life better for the Afghan people. But uh, the conversations about how to execute on this mission will always focus on protecting America. We did that for the last for the last 14 months of our administration. We didn't have a senior uh, American official attacked by the Taliban. This is something that was not because of a piece of paper. It was because of American power and President Trump's deterrence model that we had established.
2: Uh, you said senior American. I think you meant a single American attack. A
1: single, yes. No, we didn't have a single attack on America by the Taliban from... February of 2020 till the end of our administration.
2: So on Thursday of last week, former President Trump joined me on the air. He told me of a conversation he had with uh, Mullah Baradar. Were you in the on that conversation, on that call, Mr. Secretary? Yes, sir, I was. Who else was on that call?
1: You know, I don't recall. It wouldn't surprise me if Ambassador O'Brien was on the call, but I don't know for sure. I know that I was part of the call, along with the president, where he wanted I'd been talking with Mullah Baradar, and he wanted to speak to him as well to emphasize and reemphasize what I had told the Taliban about the costs we would impose on them if they didn't comport with the American demands.
2: President Trump's description of that was colorful. Uh, Do you recall the conversation, including a threat to uh, Baradar?
1: Yes, I remember it well. It was a uh, it was a very direct conversation. The president was unambiguous about the way we would respond if they came after a single American There was probably some colorful language not uh, right for uh, FCC scrutiny. Um, But suffice it to say, I, I don't think there was any doubt in the senior Taliban leadership's mind that the United States would respond in a way that would impose disproportionate costs on them if they attacked an American.
2: Was the leader of the Taliban at the end of that conversation afraid of America using either MOABs or even weapons of greater impact than that?
1: I am confident that he was very concerned we would use every American tool to protect our interests.
2: Now, again, I want to go back to the release of the 5,000 Taliban in the aftermath of Doha. That's been widely criticized. It's not the same as what happened at Bagram in the aftermath of the collapse that we're going through. Who were those 5,000? Why were they released?
1: So the the composition of the 5,000 was a mixed bag. These were, of course, Afghan prisoners, as you'll recall, Hugh, as a result of uh, Lots of conversations around the history of Afghanistan. The Americans didn't detain and hold prisoners there. Uh, these were Afghan prisoners. They were part of the conversation. The decision to release them was the Afghan government decision. We we watched it. There were certain uh, number of folks that we made clear were unacceptable. So we drew lines about who could be released and who couldn't. Uh, I'm, I'm confident that there were bad guys amongst those who were released. But it was part of the process. Part of the process to deliver on what would ultimately we prayed be uh, less fighting, a reduced civil war, better lives for the Afghan people.
2: The people who have been released subsequent to that, and in the collapse of our effort, there are they significantly worse than those five thousand? Do they include the the worst of the worst?
1: You know, Hugh, I, I don't know exactly who all's gotten out. We we were very careful. We had a big list where we. Uh, Black Market said, nope, this person's not going to get out. You can't let this person out. Uh, The Afghan government honored that. They didn't release anyone that we had asked them to continue to detain. Uh, I'm sure that there were even worse actors that have gotten out as a result of the fact that now it's Katie bar the door and the Taliban is in complete control of the country. Not only will those actors be worse, but the capacity to monitor them and uh, respond to the actions that they take is now greatly diminished as well.
2: The president, President Biden, has repeatedly stated that al-Qaeda is finished in Afghanistan. Is that your belief, Secretary Pompeo?
1: No, it's not finished. Although I must say from where we were in September of 2001 or even in uh, September of 2011, just 10 years ago, we are in a much better place in Afghanistan. There were When we left office, there were fewer than 200 al-Qaeda operatives inside of Afghanistan, some across the border in Pakistan as well. So there is substantial progress that had been made with respect to al-Qaeda. That is absolutely true. Uh, But they're not finished. Uh, The Taliban are deeply connected to them. uh, Siraj Haqqani, who uh, we've been trying to catch for an awfully long time, is a senior member of the Taliban team. Uh, There's a bunch of folks who are complicit in work that are on the other side in the Pakistani border as well. So, no, the, the risk from al-Qaeda remains, but we do have to keep in mind, not just from Afghanistan. This is a global organization headquartered in Iran.
2: We have no allies in the region, as far as I can tell. That was not the case in 2001 when we began the invasion. It is the case in Vladimir Putin has said we are not welcome in Tajikistan elsewhere. Do you have any hope that Team Biden will establish the relationship with any of the neighboring countries that will allow us to operate in an overwatch from other than the Reagan, which has been deployed from the Pacific to off the coast of Pakistan, which has left the South China Sea naked?
1: It's an important question. I spent a fair amount of time in Central Asia. We worked hard with the Uzbeks, the Tajiks, uh, the the Kazakhs, uh, all, all aimed at solving the central conundrum. Afghanistan is in a very difficult place for America to access. I hope that they are working on this very problem set. I hope they're working on it in the very near term. Those are the most likely places as the Americans who are left behind after our departure tomorrow. That's the most likely way we're going to be able to get Americans out in a continued basis after September 1st of this year. I hope they're working with those countries to permit civil flights and, if need be, uh, uh, military flights into and out of their country to deliver both Americans back home, Hugh, as well as to continue to. Uh, perform the intelligence collection and then the operations necessary to protect us from Afghanistan. Uh, those are those Central Asian countries are in a difficult place. Uh, they will continue to need American support. I hope we will use that support in a way that delivers on the interests that matter most to the American people.
2: Before I get to reestablishing deterrence with Taiwan and and Ukraine over China and Russia respectively, I want to talk to you about the evacuation. Senator Haggerty, who was Ambassador Haggerty under your watch at, at State. Uh, said very sharply last week that the evacuation plan is the responsibility of the ambassador. It is clear we did not have an evacuation plan. We have a lot of excuses as to why Americans had to be rounded up, why many have been left behind, why the SIVs were not issued. Who is responsible for the utter failure of the State Department in Afghanistan to prepare our allies to get out and even Americans to get out?
1: Well, goodness, in the first instance, the responsibility always falls to the singular figure that America puts in charge. That's the commander in chief. So this all begins with President Biden setting that hard stop date. I am confident that the uh, administration actors began to respond to that uh, in a way that reflected, how do you make the best out of the fact that we now have, I guess, Jake Sullivan said, 120 days to execute this plan. Hard stop, no options. in the end, the responsibility for all things that have happened here falls to President Biden. The, the, the tactical and operational level work for the evacuation is, in fact, always led by the State Department. Uh, I, I can't tell you what planning may or may not have been done, and we can see that the execution just simply didn't deliver in those 120 days the outcome that the situation demanded, every American having the capacity to get help.
2: Should Secretary of State Blinken resign
1: you know, I just think there's a lot of time to have those conversations. We've still got Americans in our way here. We are 24 hours out from what will likely be the last American military aircraft flying into Hamakar Zayi Airport. Uh, I think there's a long way. In, in the end, I always think that the right person to hold accountable is the president of the United States. That's the person that the people of the United States elected. And it's, in fact, his responsibility to make sure that his team executes in a way that delivers on behalf of the American people.
2: Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Scheller has issued a Facebook video that's gone viral. He's been relieved of his command. What is your advice to your friends? And you know everyone. You know General McKenzie. You know General Milley. You know them all. What is your recommendation to those individuals about his future? Uh, You
1: know, I I don't know the the details. Uh, I I must say, um, I, I think our military leaders all along on every space, Ought to spend more time focused on war fighting and less time speaking publicly about these things. I know everybody still has some element of their first amendment freedoms even inside the military, but they're greatly reduced. Focus on the things that are within your control. I'd say this not only for uh, colonels and majors but for generals too don't do politics do do war fighting if if you if you do that and you focus on delivering providing good advice to your boss or To the president of the United States, if you're sufficiently senior, If, if you as the military leader will focus on those things, America will be better off. The political leaders can manage the political situation and be held accountable for it. Our military leaders need to focus on the singular activity of delivering American power where it is most needed and at the point of attack.
2: Mr. Secretary, you're probably going to seek the highest office. It's not certain yet. But if you obtain that and a general really disagrees with the decision that you make, do you expect that general to speak up and get out, or do you expect that general to speak up and then execute? What do you expect of generals who disagree with you if you become the commander in chief?
1: No, they, the, the the military works for the commander in chief. We have civil authority. I, I would expect every general to tell me no, no BS. What they really believe, why they believe it, demonstrate why their point is. Why the president's responsibility to so listen to that and then make the difficult political decisions that our presidents are often asked to make. That military leader then has to make uh, his or her own decision. Uh, if the answer is the president is giving you a lawfully executable order, your uh, your mission is very clear. It is to go execute that mission to the utmost of your capability and direct that your team do that as well. If it's unlawful or just you find the order to be immoral, then you have a responsibility to resign to leave your post. It is not an option to either undermine what the president of the states is trying to do or to ignore that lawfully given order. I I hope our leaders are doing that, our military leaders are doing that. They're focused on their lane, delivering American military power, and they're giving the president their honest assessment of the risks connected to that. I I saw that for four years. I saw our military leaders tell the president of the United States, here's what we think will happen if you do X, here's what the risks are if you do Y, here's the opportunity if we do Z. I, I watched them do that, and I saw the president evaluate their Input, take it on board and then make the tough decisions that commanders, only the commander in chief can actually take.
2: All right. Now to deterrence. We have been badly damaged by the events of the last four months in the eyes of the world. China us, Russia us. What ought we to do to reestablish deterrence, particularly with regards to Taiwan and Ukraine? Secretary Pompeo.
1: So deterrence is the central thesis of how American security policy has been executed for the last uh, 40 years. Uh, President Reagan massively talked about peace through strength. Uh, we did it as well. Right? When we were threatened by, by the Iranians, we struck Qasem Soleimani. When ISIS was on the run, we took down the caliphate. In every place, I think the world understood that President Trump was prepared to do what was required to protect America's interests. We can get that back here as well. Uh, a good start would be in a place like Taiwan, uh, a big delegation the delivery of actual military hardware in support of the defense of Taiwan uh, conference in Japan, making clear that the allies were all focused on the security of the people of Taiwan. Those would all be simple things that could be executed next week or the week after and would send a message to the Chinese Communist Party. We. We, we, we may not have gotten it right in Afghanistan, but we are going to be with our friends, our allies. We're going to support those people who we are committed to the fullest extent of America's capacity. I would, I would welcome seeing that. I, I think the world would welcome seeing America reassert itself on the global stage in the way that we had for the last four years before this administration.
2: What is the role of Congress now? Obviously, it's a Democratic Congress that may change in 2022. I know CAVPAC, your, your PAC, is working to change that. But what ought Congress to do in a bipartisan fashion right now about the catastrophe that's befallen Afghanistan?
1: Well, there will be time for hearings and the like to evaluate how this came to be, how we uh, left Americans behind and the, the, how we ended up with 13 Americans killed in the final days of our time there in Afghanistan. Completely appropriate that those hearings take place, but moreover, the, every leader, Democrat and Republican alike, should demand that this administration learn from this, and demand that we respond in a way around the world, right? By supporting our friends on Taiwan, by supporting the Israelis. Right? Another good action to reestablish deterrence would be to tell the Iranians we're done with this conversation about your nuclear program. We're, we're simply done with. We're going to go extend the sanctions, impose even harsher sanctions on the Iranian regime, at least until such time as you expel al-Qaeda from your country. That would be a simple thing instead of talking about how much money we can transfer to these folks to convince them that uh, they should behave in the way we want it. The, The deterrence model works. American power has always delivered for the American people. I hope this administration will get it, and every member of Congress should demand that this administration move towards those objectives.
2: My last question, Mr. Secretary, you're too young to remember the late 70s. I was with President Nixon in San Clemente when this happened. Iran fell. And there was a great sense of inadequacy and gloom. It's all over the country right now. You can cut it with a knife. Everybody feels not only sad, but deeply frustrated and somewhat concerned that America's best days are behind her and that we are going to retire from the world stage to what do you do, what do you do about that what do you say to people who are listening to this this podcast this radio show about that america's best days aren't behind it it's not it's not the case
1: america will get it right the, the right the american people will demand that the right leaders are put in place we're going to have an election goodness it's just 14 months from now Uh, The right leaders will be put in place. I I hope this administration itself will regroup and get it right. I I pray for them to be successful. It's important for America that they are. uh, America's best days are not behind it. We are not a nation in decline. We are a robust, capable people. And I am very confident the American people will rally, even in the face of this challenge that we're seeing in Afghanistan today, to begin to deliver on the promise that our founders laid before us.
2: But will we retreat into isolation? That is, the the, the request from the right is to retreat into isolation. The request from the left is to disarm. The critics of the Trump-Doha agreement say it was a terrible moral failure from which we cannot recover. What do you say to all of them about Reaganism?
1: I I haven't seen the demand from the American people for isolationism. I'm going to be in New Hampshire tomorrow. I've been out campaigning in in Nebraska and in Texas, all all across the country. I see uh, Americans demanding that, American leaders stand up, protect America, do it in a way that doesn't require 20, 40, 60,000 soldiers in some difficult place, but uses the tools that we have, the economic might that we have, the diplomatic capability we have, our, our military capacity to inflict costs on our adversaries when the time is right. I see an America that is prepared to support our military. Americans want our law enforcement funded. All the things that we have known as the center point of American institutions, I think, remain. I think the voice of the American people is going to be heard loud and clear. And while we're going to have some difficult days here in Afghanistan in front of us, I am very confident that America will do what it has always done in difficult times, but it will rally and we will deliver America that is respected in the world and the world's leader for the next 245 years as well.
2: Former Secretary of State Pompeo, thank you for joining me again.
1: You thank you, sir. Have a good day.
2: You too. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time, andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.